ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Before this week's episode of The Minefield gets underway, we wanted you to be aware that some of the things we discuss are unavoidably distressing. So take care if there are any little ears listening, but also take care of yourself. Be conscious of your own emotional limits at a time like this. Hello there, welcome to The Minefield, a show where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Waleed Ali is my name, Scott Stevens is my co-host. Hello, Scott. Hello, Waleed. You sound tired. Yeah, isn't everyone? Yeah. <laughs> also tired in anticipation, I think. That's part yes. of the situation. Anyway, I acknowledge it's not a great way to start a radio broadcast. Uh, <laughs> come on and sound tired. I heard a story once of someone who was doing a breakfast shift who came on and said, oh, God, I'm tired. I think that might have been the last time they ever did a radio oh, show. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I do like tired in anticipation, though, because I think that's one of the ways that we register the moral weight of what it is that we're doing. Um, I've, I've never, I mean, there are wonderful traditions, uh, including within Judaism, that see morality or that see law not so much as a weight that one bears, but rather as a kind of, I mean, it's, it was sometimes referred to by the rabbis as a kind of joyful imposition. Uh, it may look like chains initially, but it's the very, it's the conditions of other forms of freedom and discovery. Um, I think there's something about, I mean, you'd want to say that being able to recognize the full humanity of another human being isn't something that's being imposed upon you. It ought to be something that lightens the world rather than makes it somehow darker or more onerous. Nonetheless, there are topics that we do and there are ways that we do them. There are ways that we contemplate them where the only way, I think, in properly characterizing them is by referring to them as a kind of moral burden. It's something that if you take it lightly or if you stroll into it with a number of half-cocked claims in your, in your pocket, um, then, you know, for want of a better phrase, you're quite simply doing it wrong. So I, I don't mind weariness and anticipation. To my mind, that's, um, <laughs> that's the proper moral disposition, which should just indicate to everybody that what we're talking about is we're resuming our ongoing conversation about the conflict in Gaza, the conflict between Israel and Hamas. So, since the last time we discussed things, where do we stand? Over the last few weeks, the painstaking task of identifying burnt and mutilated bodies in Israel has continued. It's now estimated that around 850 civilians, men, women, children were murdered by Hamas on the 7th of October. About 320 members of the IDF were also killed, and about 240 people were taken hostage back to Gaza. Men, women, again, children. We don't know how many are still alive. When it comes to Gaza itself, the death toll on best estimates is more than 11,000. The number of people who have been displaced from their homes is well over 1.5 million. Life in Gaza is becoming precarious. To say nothing of food and water, the availability of fuel is becoming an increasingly urgent issue. Whether that is to give transportation, to provide food and basic supplies for those who have been displaced, or simply to provide power to hospitals. Hospitals in Gaza have been either evacuated or are quickly becoming incapable of providing care to the sick, the wounded, the dying, to the elderly, and to premature babies. In fact, over the last week, hospitals have been the epicenter of so much of the fiercest fighting. Leaving aside loss of life, disease now is beginning to spread, including diarrhea. And given the shortage of food and water, the consequences of that kind of spread of disease for children is likely to be particularly dire. And then if things couldn't get much worse on top of it all, there's been heavy rain over the past week, reducing large parts of Gaza to a muddy, unsanitary mess. By any reckoning, Walid, the extent of the human catastrophe that's unfolding before our eyes is overwhelming. This does, however, provide a surprising connection, I think, to the show that we did last week on Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own that I, I didn't see coming until I was rereading 
some stuff a few days ago. About, about a decade after uh, The Wolf wrote A Room of One's Own, uh, she wrote a tremendous uh, pamphlet called Three Guineas, uh, which really is to some extent, again, on women's equality, women in education. But there's a remarkable moment in it where she reflects on the abomination of war, the atrocity of war, and the extent to which images ought rightly to evoke, to arrest our moral imaginations. She's referring to, in this particular instance, she's commenting on images that have come out of the Spanish Civil War. This is what she writes. She said, the images, the photographs are not pleasant to look at. They're photographs of dead bodies for the most part. This morning's collection, she writes, contains a photograph of what might be a man's body or a woman's. It is so mutilated that it might, on the other hand, be the body of a pig. But those certainly are dead children, and that undoubtedly is the section of a house. And she goes on to say that whatever their education, whatever their status and standing in life, these are the sorts of things that ought rightly to evoke from any person with any moral bearings whatsoever a feeling of, she describes it as, horror and disgust. And she says that war is an abomination, a barbarity. War must be stopped. And it's just struck me, I think, Waleed. This is now, are we on the verge of the sixth week of this particular war over Gaza? And there were calls for ceasefire, for, I think, some kind of armistice some kind of holding of the hand on the part of the IDF uh, that were made within the first week following the massacres of the 7th of October. But it has struck me, I'll confess, the way that those calls for ceasefire, for uh, at very least a kind of humanitarian pause, I find the language curious, maybe we can return to it, at very least a kind of pause so that something, something involving the humanity of the people affected, caught in the crossfire, uh, caught between the, let's call it, maximalist ambitions that are being displayed on either side of the conflict between Israel on the one hand and Hamas on the other. Um, there's a call for pause, and that call has gotten increasingly vocal to become really, and please correct me if, I'm, if you think I'm misinterpreting this, a call for a cessation of hostilities altogether, a cessation of this particular war, a call that then reached its crescendo this past weekend to correspond with Remembrance Day, that war is an abomination. War is a horror. And however we might see our way to the end of this, or whatever might have precipitated it, this cannot go on. You already made reference to the question of proportionality, to after a certain point, numbers almost dwarf or almost suffocate the imagination. There's something about what's going on that in the soul of any person with their moral bearings intact ought to elicit the sense this cannot continue. Whatever else is demanded in this situation, whatever justice is required in response to 7th of October, this this loss of life, this crushing of the bodies of infants and children and the elderly and entire families, the destruction of an entire system of life, the conditions of possibility of life itself, this, this cannot continue. And I really think... Can, that, I, can I say there, please. though, that's where the difference between the humanitarian pause and the ceasefire becomes really important. Yes, I agree. Because what, what the humanitarian pause is basically saying is just give us a few hours so we can get food or medicine or whatever in. It's the bare minimum, the bare essentials, essentially. Yeah, but underlying that is a sense that we don't have a problem really with the overall direction of travel. Yeah. We just want to tweak the way in which we get there. Mm. That's right. That's right. What the ceasefire is saying is wrong way, go back. Or it's saying that massive concessions have to be offered up on both sides. Ah, uh, well, yeah, but that's still wrong way about go back, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, okay, fair enough. Right, it's saying that we cannot continue this way. Hmm. The implication there is that really the only argument against a ceasefire is that when it's all said and done, 
you're comfortable or comfortable enough with what's happening. Hmm. Am I wrong there? In the sense that there is an underlying, if tragically compromised, dimension of justice to the cause. Uh, I'm or not just some notion of necessity. Or... Necessity, which, 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 in the argument as it stands, is that that necessity does have something to do with a certain, a certain claim of justice. Uh, right. Yeah. And so this is where all the arguments about proportionality, etc. That's right. That's right. Come from right. But just um, is my statement wrong to say that if you are to argue against a ceasefire, you have to effectively be saying you're comfortable with what's happening. Uh, or if, or mm-hmm. is dif- or if discomforted, mm-hmm. not sufficiently to think that it shouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. I, I agree, and in fact, I would take it one step further. It's not just that there is a thoroughgoing discomfort with what's happening. Not only is it this is the wrong road we need to turn around and go back, but that there was something misconceived from the outset. Um, okay, explain that. I'm not entirely sure that a call for a ceasefire has to concede. I think a lot of people who call for a ceasefire would say that, mm. but I don't know that they have to necessarily. Mm. Well, can you expand on that? Sure. Here I think the timing matters. Let's say we were six months down the road and certain strategic objectives, quote-unquote. I, I, actually, I hate the language of strategy and military achievement or military goals here, but let, let's just, let's, let's stick with it. Uh, certain strategic objectives had been accomplished, but at too great a cost, too great a cost. Uh, or that the idea that something like Hamas, which was so insidious and had insinuated itself throughout Gazan life, that the idea of uprooting it with something as blunt as military force uh, uh, was, we kind of discovered six months down the road, we, we, we misunderstood the enemy. Then I think a ceasefire could say, okay, we're going the wrong way. Um, this was something, okay, the idea might have been right, but we're halfway down a road to a destination and there's no clear path to the end. There's another route to a ceasefire, though, that doesn't have to say that. True, true. And that would go something like this, I think. Um, you cannot go about it this way. Okay. So, okay, so let's let's try to do it as a decision but, tree or something. But hang on, sort, but, right? but just, just quickly, just to finish my, my point then, because I get the sense you're going to take this in a different direction. Um, I think the timing of calls for ceasefire in this instance... The calls for ceasefire were being made within a week of the original events of 7th of October. And the fact that we are at the end of the fifth week, in other words, the shortened time frame and the scale of the destruction in that short time frame and the body count in that short time frame, it's that, I think, that means that were a ceasefire to be called now, it would have to say that whatever it is that was accomplished over the last five weeks, A, it wasn't worth the toll, and B, such has been the toll that it was probably wrongly conceived in the first place. In other words, this is a problem that does not have a military solution. Okay, so that's, that's one way through it. Another way through it would be to say um, the aim is both legitimate and realisable, but you are obliged in undertaking it to be less reckless, hmm. to be more discriminate. In other words, in not the way in which... by airstrikes, say, yep. but at the risk of larger loss of military life, but yep. perhaps greater consideration given to non-combatants. Right. Which I think is an argument that has a great amount of ethical force, but also is kind of the point of the international legal obligations that a nation state has. Well, I'll I'll say, because we've argued this in the context of other conflicts, I'll say it has a great deal of ethical force as well. I would also say, and, 
And not just does it have an ethical force, but it's something that I happen to agree with deeply. I would also say um, it is a very tall, it's a very difficult request to make of a nation in the throes of catastrophic mourning. That not only do we want you to respond to the murder of civilians, but we want you to do it in such a way that places... Just remember, when Israel is at war, soldiers are referred to as the sons of Israel, the daughters of Israel. We want you now to place your sons and your daughters in in greater moral risk, under greater moral threat. I, I agree... I agree with this particular moral, the particular moral point that you're making about the ethics of war. I also believe that the state of Israel was in no emotional or political condition to make that particular demand or to take yeah, that particular. The, the trouble with opening that door, quite apart from what it does to any set of rules that's meant to govern yes. the way a nation state behaves, you're right. is that. It's precisely the argument that would be deployed against Israel, isn't yes, it? Yes, that trauma, that trauma produces atrocity. Right. That's right. I so, agree. I agree. Okay, so now we're in this cycle of brutality. I think, yeah, and the idea of the sons of Israel, yeah, okay. I mean, I don't deny how real that would feel. But you can't have it both ways. No, you I can't agree. say there's a difference between a military and a civilian target or a military and a civilian life while then at the same time bemoaning the targeting of civilians. Yeah, yeah recategorise military people as though they're civilians because they're sons. No, no, no. no. I, and I know that's not what you're doing, but there's a certain That's not what I'm of, doing, but that's also not what Israelis are doing. No, no, but what I'm saying because is there's there's, certain, because, there's mandatory, because there's mandatory conscription. Yeah. It just means that everybody is related to a soldier. And yeah. it's it's an emotional categorization rather than rather than a ploy of strategy, right? Yeah. But yeah, no, I, yeah, I don't. I'm I know. Not trying I know to get into that sort of argument. I'm just saying, when it comes to assessing the available options and the best options to take, I just don't think that can be factored in. I agree. It's just not uh, not without undoing the whole point of the distinctions that drive the ethics and the laws of war. And this is the very reason, for instance, that we have courts rather than familial revenge. Right. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. Although we don't have courts when it comes to international law in any No, we don't, which is a topic way. for another show, I feel. That's another show. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, and, and I guess that's where it would fall, right, is it would say, yes, I understand that to do this a different way would pose a much greater risk, maybe not even much, but let's say much, much greater risk to the lives of soldiers. But when you are a nation state engaging in violence, um, what the law requires of you, or even what ethics requires of you, is to shift the burden or the risk as much as possible away from a civilian population and onto a military one. That's right. And if that's the shift that's demanded, um, then the fact that that's hard or emotionally gut-wrenching or whatever isn't really – it doesn't change that equation. May I Because add, sorry, the alternative is that the destruction is visited upon um, a civilian population. So the way I would go through this, right, is I would say you have a couple of analytical options, right? You can say – all right, October 7th happens. Israel's going to respond. It decides to respond with Hamas must be eliminated. Do you think that is a legitimate goal or not? Um, and you might get off at that point and say, no, that's not a legitimate goal for the precise reason that it's just an unrealizable one. It misconstrues what Hamas is. It's insufficiently precise in what it means, given that it's not a nation state, it's not a regime, um, it's 
and irregular as opposed to conventional sort of a threat and that um, it is not simply a select group of people you can excise, but it represents something more than that. You could call it an ideology, you could call it a disposition towards a conflict, you could call it, call it whatever you like, but that is something that tends not to be removed by military force and perhaps even only becomes exacerbated by military force as people undergo all kinds of trauma and then find their own political positions hardening and radicalising, right? You could So you could get off at that point or you could stay on at that point and say, I agree with this goal, I think it's a legitimate and realisable one. Uh, however, there's a question about the method. Then, and that's when you get to the next question, which is, is the method sound? Clearly Israel says it is. Increasingly, most of the world is saying either it isn't or that they have misgivings about it. Mm. And here I refer to the conversation we just had about what the obligations are upon a nation state. I think that's probably the, sorry to put this in a sort of benign managerial way, but like... I've come to expect nothing less from you, William. That's, That's, wow. (laughs) (laughs) That might be the most offensive thing you've ever said. Um, Decision tree. Decision tree, William. that's the decision tree, right? That's right. Is that an accurate description? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Could I... Could I add two... I'm re- I really want to get to our guest. Sure. May I add just two slight qualifications, though, that I just feel that I feel unnecessary. Uh, I, I don't have any objections to what you've just laid out. I actually think the clarity of it is both admirable and it really helps to sharpen the issues in the first place. There are two things, though, that I think hang off this that I can hear, I mean, as you're talking, I can hear myself raise certain objections. I can hear other people that I know raise certain objections. And I just want to give voice, I suppose, to two aspects. One is the way that you characterized Hamas, I think, is, is, is almost certainly correct. That it's not as if this is a standing army with a discrete base, with discrete headquarters, uh, um, with a parliament, Uh, with anything that we would say would resemble either a state or a political organization in this sense. But that also goes to the heart, I think, of what I referred to before as the insidiousness of Hamas. The fact that it weaves its way, and I would say in a manner that is either incredibly cynical, that is dismissive of the lives of Palestinians themselves, or that is so heedless with respect to either that it can place itself near schools or under schools, near hospitals or under hospitals. Um, uh, and even the extent to which it was willing to invite this particular destruction on the Palestinian, on the residents of Gaza, um, as a way of keeping the issue, quote-unquote, alive. Um, I think there's something that, that presents a matter of profound uh, moral objection, a cause for moral objection, but I think you're right. It also provides a strategic problem that can't simply be brushed away as if, well, this is an insidious and therefore inhuman enemy, therefore we need to go and above and beyond. I, I just think that that's a, that's a point, that's a further uh, dimension that, that's worth... Um, that's worth Also, but can I say to that, this is commonly true of unconventional respondents in a conflict. Yeah. Right? And this is why, this is one of the reasons I think, and my card's on the table here, I'm sceptical of the very aim, the very ambition. All right? That's where I jump off, right? Because this is the story, it seems to me, of just about every time a conventional, hmm. a conventional military force is used sure. to target something that is not its mirror image. Hmm. Yes. It very rarely works. It usually results in something worse. Um, and I think that's because it is theoretically misconceived. Yeah. I understand that there would probably be no one in the Israeli government who would agree with me on that. But that's analytically where I end up yep. because I feel like I've seen this over and over. That does raise, interestingly enough, a further complication here that I don't think has been discussed anywhere near as much as as it should be. And that's the fact that the Netanyahu Israeli government has been willfully, and I would say cynically, I would say almost nihilistically, been propping up Hamas for the better part of 15 years, knowing that, uh, well, in Netanyahu's own 
uh, own logic of maximalist, of, of, of say, uh, maximalist territory, of maximalism, uh, that there can be no agreement with Hamas. Therefore, they are better partners in this particular conflict than Fatah, than the Palestinian Authority. And so by funneling Qatari money through to Hamas, by strengthening them, uh, and by correspondingly weakening Fatah, uh, who, who really could, really could pose something like a partner in peace uh, or a partner in some kind of brokered accommodation. The cynicism that runs through that particular side of Israeli politics, I find, I find suffocating and, and despicable in the extreme. I just want to mention one other very, very brief thing, Waleed. We began by talking about humanitarian pauses. And I think pauses to some extent are important because they're one of the ways that we do keep our sense of humanity alive. I didn't mind the language of pause, even if there's, even if it seems kind of too, 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 what do you call it? Too weak, too ephemeral. Um, I think one of the things that, 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 undercuts the opposition on the part of many people to the idea of a ceasefire in the first place was that after the 7th of October, there was not even a pause then. We were immediately thrown into certain forms of history, of strategic or geopolitical logic. Um, Pauses are no small thing. Pauses are the gaps in time in which we let pity and humanity breathe. And I think one of the things that offended many Jews about the calls for an initial ceasefire within days, within days even, was that is so callous towards the suffering that we have undergone. Now, this is not to say in any respect that that experience of evil then gives license to be plotted onto a kind of uh, maximalist military goal. Uh, I think there are tremendous problems with that. But I think had there been more, let's call it decency, in the immediate aftermath rather than immediate calls, immediate calls for there to be no justice, no retaliation, um, I think there would have been something there that would have made subsequent calls for ceasefire much more palatable for people who are heavily emotionally invested on one side of this conflict. Well... Let's go to our guest, because I haven't got time to tease that one out. Our guest is Omer Botov. He's the Samuel Pissar Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. He's the author of a wonderful recent book called Genocide, the Holocaust, and Israel-Palestine, First-Person History in Times of Crisis. Omer, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm just going to hand it over to you. Where do you want to pick up this particular conversation? Uh, you've covered uh, a great deal while I was listening, so um, it's a bit um, hard to decide where, but let me say one sort of general thing um, before we get into the details. I, I look at this from um, a slightly different perspective. So quite apart from whether, as Walid was saying, whether it made sense to attack Gaza or not, uh, and how do you retaliate, or what is the nature of Hamas, there is a larger question, and the question is, what is the actual goal of the war in Gaza, and in what sort of political framework is it being made? Uh, the Israeli government doesn't want to talk about that. It doesn't want to talk about it for reasons that you mentioned earlier. Um, that is that its previous policy was to keep Hamas relatively strong, keep the Palestinian Authority weak, so that it could marginalize the entire Palestinian issue. And by doing that, um, it could continue settling the West Bank. Hmm. And as it was doing during, if you remember, before the attack of October 7th, uh, the government, Netanyahu's administration, was trying to do a so-called judicial overhaul, which was really an attempt to weaken the judiciary and strengthen the executive, with the goal of uh, accelerating the takeover of the West Bank, uh, which would be eventually, or large parts of it, were supposed to be then annexed. 
And so that was part of a particular policy that Netanyahu has pursued for a very long time. Now, all this blew up, not only in his face, but in the face of the Israeli public, um, quite horrendously on October 7th. And so the question is, do you change the very paradigm of Israeli policies vis-a-vis the Palestinians, or do you want to act in a way that would put them back, so to speak, in their place, and then move on from there to continue with what you had been doing before? Netanyahu is in no position to change the paradigm. If he tries to change the paradigm, he's out of power. If he's out of power, that is, he loses his coalition because his partners are extremely, are real extremists and and we can talk about them. And if he loses power, then he has a good likelihood of going to jail. So he obviously doesn't want to do that. Um, But the only way that whatever Israel is doing in Gaza can succeed as more than another operation of, as the Israeli army calls it, mowing the lawn, is if the political paradigm is changed. And that is really where we can think about what's happening now as just plunging into ever greater darkness, or you can say maybe this is an opportunity to change things despite the terrible price that everyone is paying, there may be some silver lining at the end of that. Sorry, when exactly is the end that you're talking about there, Omar? Because I suppose that's Mm -hmm. the issue, right, is that this is what the calls for a ceasefire are after, is to bring that end now so that there can be some, I guess, pause or some moment for recalibration, perhaps reorientation for negotiation, if that's even possible, whatever it is. But if what you say about Netanyahu is an accurate analysis, then the prospects of a ceasefire are zero. And this resetting that you're envisaging can only happen after an incredible human toll. I mean, we don't even know how long this would go on for. Would it be a month? Would it be six? Would it be a year? I mean, what if the goal is unrealizable, and, and I happen to think it is, I could be wrong, but I happen to think it is, if that turns out to be true, then this is a war without end, isn't it? Look, I mean, I think that it's possible that you're right. I, I, I don't know that we know for sure, but I do know one thing, that the, the goal that I outlined... Uh, that is of changing the political paradigm depends on two factors. One is a change of the Israeli government, and the other is of putting an end to the hegemony of Hamas in Gaza. I don't think that Hamas can be destroyed. As you were saying, it's uh, it's an ideology, it's, uh, it's a social movement, it's, it's very deeply embedded. Hamas in the past was weakened when a uh, situation, when the condition of people in Gaza improved. Say in the early 1990s, during the negotiations over the Oslo Accord, Accords, um, Hamas actually became weaker uh, because it thrives on desperation, on hopelessness. But as long as Hamas is in power in Gaza, Uh, the paradigm can't be changed. And if you look at it, and I also look at it from that perspective, from the perspective of the Israeli public, nothing will become normal any longer in Israel, or even a sort of semblance of normality, if the situation goes back to October 6th. Uh, People will not go back to their homes. Nothing will change. So, And no government, and that's not only Netanyahu's government, no Israeli government can, at this point, uh, conceive of a situation where Hamas remains the hegemon in Gaza. It has been entirely discredited. One one has to say that what they carried out, uh, this is the largest toll of Jewish lives uh, in a single event since the Holocaust. But it's also an event that entirely undermined the sense of security of all citizens in Israel. All people in Israel now feel insecure. And as long as Hamas is there, they will continue feeling that. Um, And so 
one has to resolve that. Now, can it be resolved uh, militarily alone? I don't think so. But I do think that there can be a political constellation where Hamas could leave Gaza, wherever it would go to, and there would be a temporary um, rule over Gaza by a combination of probably uh, Arab armies, soldiers from Arab armies, maybe the UN, and then a gradual transition to rule by the Palestinian Authority as it gains some kind of credibility by changing its own leadership. And that leadership exists. It's mostly in Israeli jails. Uh, that is a possibility that would then actually show you a way to the future. But it can't be done either with this current government in Israel nor with Hamas in Gaza. I think the point that you're raising, Omer, is is so vital in many respects. Because one of the things that was, I think, acutely present immediately, immediately in the aftermath of the 7th of October, is that even if some kind of retaliation designed to, let's, let's lower our expectations and say, punish Hamas so that they wouldn't conceive of doing something like this again or remove their military capabilities. I think for many people who even would sympathize with, let's say, the justice of Israel's cause would not trust this government to carry that out in a manner that is, uh, that is justifiable, that's within kind of fundamental norms of the ethics of war, which is one of the reasons, I think, why we saw the prominence of someone like Benny Gantz very, very early, uh, at very least, to try to sideline, to try to minimize the influence that Itamar Ben-Gvir or, or Bezalel Smotrich has over this government. At the same time, at the same time, the idea that these two forces, that Hamas on the one hand and the Netanyahu government on the other, that because their ambitions are so remarkably similar, in other words, not giving room for the other mm -hmm. to live, uh, that on the back of the massive forms of popular mobilization over the judicial overhaul, did feel for a moment, didn't there? It did feel that there might be, under the conditions of a different government and under the conditions of a, let's say, uh, I, I like the way that you described the removal of uh, Hamas's hegemony, if not the presence of Hamas. Um, it created the possibility of something new, the possibility of a new political settlement. A settlement. My question is the timing. I mean, you were one of many who were calling for a ceasefire within days, within days of the original event. And I think part of the logic of that is this is a problem that doesn't have a military solution. But I'm wondering about, you know, there is, there's political aspiration here. I'm just wondering about the timing and whether a polity can be capable of envisaging that kind of horizon so quickly on the heels of that kind of atrocity. Yeah, look, I mean, it's a... It's a good question, and I don't think that uh, any of us really knows. Uh, I think we have to accept that such types as Ben Gvir and Smotrich are the mirror image of Hamas. Mm. Uh, they're, they're very similar in how they see the world. And as long as they have power, uh, there is a logic of destruction that will not go away. Now, how do we get from where we are now to there? I think um, there is pressure. I mean, now we are speaking just politics. I think there is pressure building up um, on Israel externally, and there is pressure internally. Mm. Uh, as you say, there is no trust in this government, in Israel. It's, it's completely bankrupt. They're, they're not showing the polls, but uh, some polls that I sort of saw under the radar give Netanyahu something like 16%. Uh, they're, they're finished. So both internally and externally, there is pressure um, to somehow wind this down. But it won't end without a sense in the Israeli public, and that is completely separate from Netanyahu, 
uh, and it's very widespread, that you cannot go back to normal if Hamas remains the main power there because you can expect what happened to keep happening again and it'll happen more frequently because the attack of October 7th will be seen as having succeeded. Um, and so the only way to get around this is, to my mind, it's not enough to say that war is terrible. Yes, war is terrible. I've been to one. I don't recommend it to anyone. But, but that's not a policy. If you want a strategy, you have to think of how do you come out of that into a process that changes things around. Because it's impossible to go back. And by the way, it will be impossible to go back to things in Gaza. We can talk about what is going on there because um, the destruction there of human lives and the destruction there of property is such that it will take years and years and years to, to build that place up again. And it will need massive uh, help from outside. And that too should be dependent on creating it as a different place from what it was before. So when, when I talk about changing the paradigm, I mean changing the horizon, the future, the, the imaginary of what can be both for the people of Gaza for Israelis and in combining Gaza with the West Bank, that is putting end to the artificial separation that was promoted from the very beginning by Israeli governments, even before Netanyahu. We can't blame him for that. Um, it it uh, starts before that. Putting an end to that separation and beginning to think of a Palestine and an Israel that are trying to find some way to share that place without constantly shedding blood. That, that to me, without that, everything will have been in vain and everything will happen again and again and again. Amir, I think as I hear you speak, I, I sort of immediately say, well, the, the thing you're envisaging has to do with the removal of hegemony from Hamas. And you sort of say, well, the Netanyahu government's more or less over. I just think there's a countervailing Palestinian perspective on this that would say, well, the issue for them is the is Israeli government action and its frustration of any kind of possibility for accommodation. Here I'm thinking of the expansion of settlements mm. and the increase in settler violence in the West Bank, mm. for which you can't say this is because Hamas is in control. They're not in control of the West Bank. Uh, and yet this is going on. So, sorry, Walid, you're right. And in fact, one of the horrible things over the last five weeks is the extent to which settlers have been further armed by yeah. Ben Gavir um, so, un under the conditions of the assault or of the war on Gaza. So you're, you're right. This is, this is cataclysmic. They're not only armed. They're, they're, they're killing. So they're killing on the West Bank and they're trying to encourage, these people in government are trying to encourage a creeping ethnic cleansing of the West Bank, That's of right. course. Right. And so when you marry that to what's happening in Gaza, you talk about a feeling of insecurity that Israelis, every Israeli feels insecure. Yes, I accept that would be true and I accept that would be a horrible way to live. It's a very different sort of insecurity, though, to the kind of insecurity that's being experienced in Gaza at the moment, where the insecurity is one of feeling death is imminent and likely. Um, you know, people texting their family every day to say, I'm still alive. I don't know that there are many Israelis that are doing that or that um, certainly not right across the country. It's a, it's a very different sort of a thing. And so I can easily imagine, and this is me, you know, trying to ventriloquize or imagine what the response might be, but it would be something like, well, we cannot live as long as a government of this sort exists on the other side of the fence. Right. Mm -hmm. which to some extent reflects a bit the point you're saying about, you know, the, the far-right members of the Netanyahu government being a kind of mirror image of Hamas. But it's one thing to say, well, we could perhaps engineer or come up with some kind of agreement where Hamas loses its hegemony. Is that the only political settlement here? Because I'm not sure that that's one that would hold, certainly not in the eyes of Palestinians who are experiencing this right now on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Oh, no, no, no. This would be only the beginning. So, I mean, the, I, can, I can talk because I've been in a member of a group that has been trying to think how to bring about what I'm talking about, this change of paradigm now for several years. So th this precedes the, the current bout of violence, but there's been many previous ones, and there's an ongoing violence of oppression uh, of Palestinians by the Israeli state. That's, that's, you know, you have 16 years of siege of Gaza, you have 56 years of uh, occupation, and uh, the, the, the memory and the experience of the Nakba of 1948 is still ongoing. So uh, how do you change all of that? There are things that you can't repair, that that you can't change anymore, but you can look forward to a particular future and the way we've been talking about it, but obviously it cannot be done with an organization like, like Hamas that wants to basically take over the state of Israel, and it cannot be done with the kind of people who are in the Israeli government now who would like to marginalize and, if possible, ethnically cleanse the Palestinians. But if you could change uh, that type of leadership and that type of ideology and realize that between the Jordan and the sea and between the Galilee and the Sinai Peninsula live 7 million Palestinians and 7 million Jews. And they're not going anywhere. They're there to stay. You can wish them to go away. You can hope that you'll wake up in the morning and the other side won't be there. But they're still there. They're not going. So what do you do about that? How do you rearrange that in a way that they would all be able to live there in justice and peace with the same rights? And so the way we have been thinking about it is since the traditional two-state solution is no longer possible because between half and three quarters of a million Jewish settlers now live uh, in the West Bank uh, together or next to uh, three million Palestinians, and they've cut up the entire territory in a way that doesn't really make possible a regular state, the simple separation between the populations, they're just too mixed, is to try and think about it as a federation where you would have two states, there would be a Palestinian state, uh, more or less along the 67 lines that is in Gaza and in the West Bank. There would be a Jewish state on the other side of those lines, both states would have sovereignty. Uh, both peoples have a right of, of uh, defining them, themselves as, as peoples. Uh, but instead of simply separating between them and putting fences and walls between them, there would be a difference between citizenship and residence. So that you could be a citizen of one country and reside in another. Both states would have the right of return. Israel has it in its laws, and Palestine would have the same right of return. So all Palestinian refugees who would wish to do so could go back to a Palestinian state. And some of them, just like some Jews, could live in the other country. Palestinians in Israel and Israelis in Palestine but they would be there as residents and not as citizens. Sorry, so settlers to... currently in the West Bank would be permanent residents of this Palestinian um, state? A permanent is, uh, is, is a question whether they would be permanent, but if they decided to stay, and I suspect that many of them would not, but if they decided to stay, they would be residents who would have to conform to all the laws and regulations of that wow. state. They would go out and... Uh, pull out trees. That is an, an attempt. And then if uh, refugees came initially, say, to Nablus, and they wanted to go and live in Haifa, then they could go and live in Haifa as residents. One would have to negotiate the numbers, how many in, of residents could be in the other state. But that would be a way for both peoples to live in the same territory, mixed as they are now already, but having equal rights and having democratic rights, each of them as citizens in a particular country. Just trying to imagine the neighborly relations in that circumstance. 
It's certainly food for thought, Omera. We're unfortunately out of time to tease it out further, but maybe that's good. Maybe it's the kind of thing we need to pause on. Uh, and th- I appreciate you've been thinking about this for a very long time. I suspect most of our audience hasn't been thinking about it in this way. This has been a real minefield. We appreciate your guidance through it. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Omer Bartov, Samuel Pissar, Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield. Just before you sign off, Willie, this has been a heavy show. I think it's worth mentioning just before we go that the end of the recording year is coming. Christmas is coming. And after such an emotionally exhausting year and a morally exhausting year, we wanted to end the year on a slightly lighter, a kind of Christmassy note, if I can say that. So for our last show of the year in mid-December, we're going to be marking the 180th anniversary of Charles Dickens' great story, A Christmas Carol, with a Minefield Christmas special. You can think about it as a very Minefield Christmas. So we'll be joined by a special guest. We're going to sink ourselves into that world and explore some of the surprising moral connections, moral challenges that this much-loved Dickens tale poses to us. For now, though, that's it from us. We'll see you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.